Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. So I have a very weird question for you, and I hope the answer for most of you is no, but have you ever been possessed? Well, if you're thinking in the sort of horror movie way, definitely hope the answer is no. That sounds terrifying and freaky, and I don't even know what that exactly entails or means. But on the other hand, I think all of us have had a sort of experience of a kind of possession. And I don't mean like an evil being who has come in to take over your life, but I do mean something that has come in to take over your life and take over your actions. For example, I have some health issues, which make it not such a good idea for me to eat like four brownies in one sitting. However, when there are four brownies sitting in front of me, it's a long conversation. No one else is eating them. I have this insane compulsion to pick away at one after the other, eating one tiny bite, waiting 15 minutes, having another tiny bite, having a cup of coffee, having maybe a medium-sized bite and thinking that is the last bite I'm going to have. I've almost eaten half of one brownie, which really should be off limits for me. And then I have another tiny bite. And then the conversation keeps on. I don't even notice myself having another bite. And then I just think, well, I'm almost finished this brownie. I may as well just eat the whole thing. And then I start on the second one. And with each bite, I think I am definitely not going to have the next bite of brownie. And then eventually the plate is empty and no one else has touched the brownies. And I'm like, this is not good. I don't even think of myself as someone with a sweet tooth. I never think about sweets. I'm not like passing the candy aisle in the grocery store thinking, if only I could eat 6,000 Snickers. However, when it's in front of me, I just sometimes it's very hard to help myself. And again, I don't think this is like um, an evil entity taking me over per se, but there is something very odd going on. And it's not even that I am enjoying the brownie so much. It's not like each little bite I have really adds to my life and adds so much pleasure and is just this amazing aesthetic experience. I'm not even really paying that much attention. I'm just kind of doing it. And I am conscious of the fact that I shouldn't be doing it. And yet I continue. And the same experience has parallels in shopping, in just in general eating or drinking more than we need, in sexuality, in piling up money. There are all kinds of things that we do where we think logically, I really, I don't need to work this much. You know, I could take some time off, actually see my family. We would be fine if I didn't take on so many construction jobs or didn't see so many law clients or whatever it is. And yet there's this drive. No, no, no. You need to make as much money as you can. Or maybe it's not even articulated that way. It's just like, you got to go to work. There are all these different realms in which we just have this compulsion to do something. This is what the early church referred to as the passions. And this has really very little with to do with what we often mean by passion. When we talk about passion, it is like, you know, Fabio and the other lady on the cover of the romance novel, or it is, um, I'm passionate about uh, interior design and I'm studying to be an interior designer. It's kind of like following your dreams or doing the things that give you energy or bring you joy. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Patio in Latin 
It really means something that imposes itself upon you, something that that you have to suffer through, something that has an experience that has power over you. So when the church talks about the passions in this way, it is like this thing that overpowers you, this thing that you just kind of have to uh, suffer through, have to roll with, something that has control over you. So we have passions like avarice, like I just need all the money I can possibly get, even when I logically know I don't need this money, I want to get that money. We have passions like gluttony. I'm full, but I mean, I can't, it's a brownie, I can't help myself. Or I'm really hungry right now, and there's a lot of food in the refrigerator, but it's nothing exciting at all. I don't want a sandwich. I don't want a boiled egg and some toast. I don't want a can of tuna. I want like a steak, like a proper meal. I want some several sides. I want a nice bottle of wine, not a cheap bottle of wine. So gluttony is not loving food. Everyone should love food. Like we're given food by our creator to keep us alive. Gluttony is a bizarre relationship to food where it's sort of like, something is forced upon you. You have to do this often irrational thing. There is nothing wrong with a sandwich can of tuna. You're probably getting equal amounts of protein between a big can of tuna and a small steak. It's not a nutrition thing. There's just this sort of urge within you. I want something really good. I want the best. And then you might get to the restaurant, be involved in good conversation, and just sort of eat the meal mindlessly. Or you might say, yeah, that's good, and then keep on eating and not really pay a ton of attention. So it's not like there's this incredibly meaningful experience out there, and I would just relish that experience. I would take such joy in it. Instead, you're just kind of doing it. You're just sort of pushed into it. There's a passion, listlessness, sometimes translated sloth. And this passion has nothing to do with laziness. It's not being lazy. It's not like, "Uh, I don't want to go look for work. I'm just going to sit here and watch TV. Listlessness is just this sort of sense of desolation that I know I've got to do all this stuff, but I just, I just can't, I just can't face it right now. I'm just going to stare at the ceiling. It's not being tired. It's not being unwilling to do the work. You just feel bad and you kind of give yourself over to that the artist chuck close said um inspiration is for amateurs the rest of us just show up and get to work and it's in a sense an argument against listlessness it's an argument against feeling like i just i don't have it in me today to be inspired you just kind of show up and get to work you start the painting you start writing the homework assignment, you start writing the novel, you start on the report for your boss that was supposed to be on his desk on Wednesday, you know, whatever it is. Listlessness is this kind of feeling that like, ah, I just, I just can't do it. And you don't know where it comes from. It's not logical. It's not like you're a bad mathematician today and you were a great mathematician yesterday. It's just this sort of illogical thing that imposes itself upon us. And maybe the classic example, the easiest example to see is anger. You are in a fine mood. Everything is fine. There's no problem. Someone says one thing that is challenging to you or threatening or insulting, and suddenly you're like, I can't control myself. This guy, he's an idiot. I want to do something mean to him. You know, you you want to make some sort of retort that'll make him feel like an idiot, or you want to um, smash into the back of her car or whatever it is. Anger just seizes you. 
And you have to fight it to actually calm down, to stop thinking about the insult, to stop thinking about this potentially dangerous driving or whatever it is. You have to like fight yourself not to let it out. This is what we mean by the passions. They are the things that overtake you and control you. Gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, dejection, listlessness, pride, all these these feelings that just overwhelm us and drive us to do things we don't even necessarily want to do. I've talked about this a bit before, but it's important here to note that this is not because sex is bad. It's not because money is bad. Any of these worldly things that we desire safety or um, a sense of of wholeness or wellness within ourselves or whatever. These are all great things. Um, But there is something within us that tries to drive us to have way too much of these things or to misuse these things or to think about these things in crazy ways. So a lot of the, the fathers of the church We'll talk about the struggle against the passions, the war against the passions, that our life of repentance is a lifelong struggle with these passions. I mentioned last time, I think, a story from the Desert Fathers in which one monk hears that another monk has overcome the passions, and he says, that's amazing. I got to meet this guy. That's just fantastic. So he goes to this monk and he says, so let's say you're walking out in the desert and you see among the stones on the ground all this gold. They're just gold coins, gold nuggets, just gold everywhere. Are you really going to just like see them as any other rock? And he says, no, not even close, but I'm going to fight my avarice when I see them. I'm going to remember my vows of poverty. I'm going to do my very best to ignore them. But of course, avarice still rises up within me. And so for the desert fathers and the desert mothers, a huge part of what they were doing was fighting against the passions. And they did this with one single tool. And this tool is called eschesis. Eschesis really means exercise or training. So if you are supposed to have dinner with your close personal friend, LeBron James, and if you're not from the US or just don't care about sports, LeBron James is like this epic, incredible basketball player. If you're supposed to have dinner with LeBron James and you're like, pull out your phones, you're looking for a date. And he's like, tomorrow? No, I can't do tomorrow. I got to train. Tuesday? No, sorry, I got to train. Wednesday? No, I got to train. Friday, I could maybe fit you in between 5.15 and 5.20 because I got to train. You wouldn't actually be that surprised because to be that good at basketball requires a lot of physical fitness. It requires a lot of practice. It requires serious, serious training. And ascesis is training. So when it's LeBron James, we're not surprised that he trains all the time. When it's one of the desert fathers or desert mothers, we say, you didn't eat for 10 days? You've been fasting for 10 days? Are you insane? Food is not bad. Why are you doing this? Or you've been awake for 48 hours in a prayer vigil? Look, God wants you to get some rest. Like this is, you're taking this too far. With all these different acts of ascesis, we assume that they're doing these things because they're macho, because they're crazy, because these stories are kind of like outlandish, um, hyperbolic fairy tales almost of like people that were supposed to be so uh, holy they became superhuman. But really what they're doing is what LeBron is doing. They're just training all the time. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says, athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable garland, literally just a crown of leaves, 
you work super hard and you win some leaves. But we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. But I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. So St. Paul is very much saying, look, LeBron James, really impressive that he gets this crown of leaves, that he wins all of these games, that he gets all these endorsements, that he's a millionaire, that he's kind of king of the NBA. Great. But I am doing the same thing. I am training all the time so that I can open my heart to God, so that I can be more fully a temple of the Holy Spirit. So which kind of training is a more worthwhile endeavor? Obviously for St. Paul, it is this ascesis, it is this spiritual training, it is enslaving his body, it is reigning in the passions. So he does all this not to win brownie points with the Lord, not to get into heaven. He's not building a stairway to heaven. He is not doing these actions to get more gold stars in the great book of life. If you stay up for 40 days straight and you don't eat anything and you stand on your head and uh, you don't cut your toenails, whatever, that doesn't win points with God. God does not love you more. That does not get you into heaven any quicker. That has nothing to do with what the Desert Fathers or St. Paul are doing. They are not doing this for God. They are doing this for themselves. Fighting the passions, quieting the passions, allows you to hear the voice of Christ, to see the movements of the Holy Spirit within your life. But when you have the passions shouting at you from all sides, you know, more sex, more money, more food, more success, more fame, more people liking you, that's all you can hear. And so the desert fathers and desert mothers literally enslave their bodies, literally punish themselves so that they could quiet and fight against those passions. And this is what we hear over and over in the lives of the desert fathers and mothers. And in a way, this is what makes it so alienating for modern people. This idea that they would live these lives of extreme asceticism, extreme ascesis, extreme training 24-7. They would have a little tiny bit of food on a normal day. Like they would try and get by with the least food you can eat and stay alive. They would have a little bit of bread. They would have a little bit of salt. They would have maybe a little garden patch somewhere, maybe, and have a couple of vegetables. And they would have water, but not too much even of that. They wanted to give no ground for the body, for the passions, for whatever it is that takes us over and leads us into anger and pride and arrogance and vanity and avarice, all these things. They wanted to give that no ground. So they were like, uh-uh, I'm pushing you around. So the most basic passion, the one that I started with, is the passion for brownies. Because it is food that keeps us alive, not brownies specifically. But food is what keeps us from dying. So if you give up all food and all water for Lent, it's probably going to be your last Lent. Like you cannot survive without food and water. Those are essential things. And so when the desert fathers and mothers are able to say to their hunger, I'm not even going to give in to you. I'm going to have the absolute minimum to keep me alive. And you can talk all you want about how frustrating it is, about what a headache you've got, about how, how energy-less you are without having some roast chicken or whatever. I'm not going to listen. And when they were able to say no to that hunger, 
able to say no to that basic passion to sustain life, they started to be able to say no to the lesser passions. So if you build up that muscle of saying no to hunger so much, if it's so huge, when anger comes along, you can say, please, you know, I've had hunger yelling at me for 30 years. You think you're going to push me around? And so someone says something cruel or insulting or threatening, and they say, God bless you. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be praying for your health and for your success and for your joy in life. You know, I hope, I hope you have a wonderful day. And they're not saying that in some kind of weird condescending way. They mean it because anger starts rising up within them and they just put it aside. They don't stuff it down. They're not repressing it. They're not waiting to get home and punch their pillow. They're genuinely like, sorry, anger. You, there's nothing to hang on to here. However, the passions are pretty clever as adversaries, and they can actually use works of ascesis to feed the passions rather than learning how to defeat them. So you might say, well, I haven't eaten anything but bread and salt and water for like 10 years, and I rarely sleep, and I spend all my time saying the Psalms. So I'm doing a pretty good job, actually. I'm maybe the best Christian I know. In fact, I'm... I'm wildly impressive. And pride can take all of that and make it useless. The great desert mother Syncletica said, A treasure that is known is quickly spent. And even so, any virtue that is commented on and made a public show of is destroyed. Even as wax is melted before the face of fire, so the soul is enfeebled by praise and loses the toughness of its virtue. So for Mother Syncletica, if you are doing these incredible works, and they are so impressive and so amazing, and yet other people are seeing them and commenting on them and impressed by them, you most likely have done them completely in vain. Because in the same way that you're not doing them to impress God, you are certainly not doing them to impress random people around you. So the only reason to engage in ascesis, in this training, in this self-denial, is to fight against the passions. That's it. That's the whole ballgame. The Desert Fathers also warn against the sort of like spiritual equivalent of a get-rich-quick scheme. The abbot Longinus asked the abbot Lucius, saying, I meditate on three things. I've got these three plans I'm making about how to become a holier monk. First, that I shall go on pilgrimage. So maybe if I walk all the way to Jerusalem, that's really going to bring about great holiness in my life. And the old man answered him, If you don't hold your tongue, wherever you go, you won't be a pilgrim. But control your tongue here, just stay in your hut, and here you will be a pilgrim. So if you go about freely judging people, freely condemning people, saying, oh, him, he's a moron. Or like, that lady, that's terrible taste, the worst style ever. Even if you're on the way to Jerusalem, you're definitely not a pilgrim. And if you can hold your tongue here, just go to your job, take care of your family, whatever it is that you do each day, and speak in a way that is speaking grace and kindness and peace, you are a pilgrim. So second project. And the abbot Longinus said to him, okay, another plan I have that I will fast for two days at a time. For 48 hours, I'm not going to have a drop of water. I'm not going to have a crust of bread. I'm definitely not going to have one of those brownie crumbs. 
And the abbot Lucius replied, Isaiah the prophet said, If you would bow down your head like a bulrush, not this way would your fast be accepted, but rather refrain your mind from evil thoughts. So he says, look, if you're eating bread and you still are engaging evil thoughts, you know, if a thought comes into your head like, how did she get that job? I mean, I'm so much better at doing this than she is. Like, she doesn't deserve this. And you allow yourself to kind of wrap your mind around that thought and even kind of run with that thought or meditate on that thought. The fact that you haven't eaten for two days means literally nothing. But if you are able to have that thought, how how did she get this job? She doesn't deserve this. I'm so much better at her. And then you immediately think, that's ridiculous. I don't have all the answers. Like, neither of us is perfect. And she may have qualities that are incredible. Like, and who am I to be the arbiter? Who am I to be her judge? And you respond with humility and love. That is much better than not eating anything for two days. And so the abbot Longina says, okay, okay, okay. But the third thing that is in my mind is to refuse the sight of men. I'm going to go so far away from all civilization, I will never see a human being again. You've heard of solitary confinement? This is like next level. I'm going to do it until I die. And the abbot Lucius answered him, unless you will first amend your life, going to and fro among others, you will not avail to amend it dwelling alone. So if you are unable to stop your judgmental thoughts, your angry words, your gossip, your unkindness, your lack of patience with people, your lack of charity for the poor or the suffering, whatever it is, while you're still with people, being in solitary confinement is not going to fix that. However, if you fix all those things here and now, then you are head and shoulders in the spiritual life above somebody who just decides to spend all their life in solitary confinement. Again, not in terms of being in God's favor, in getting into heaven, anything like that. Instead, you are head and shoulders above them in humility, in graciousness, in kindness, in love, in peace, in joy, in all these things that are signs of God in our lives. So the desert fathers and mothers have these extreme acts of ascesis, not eating, not sleeping, like Anthony being out of the sight of people for decades. And those are impressive. And those can even be extremely good for them. Those can be transformative to their spiritual life, not for the God's benefit, not for the benefit of other people, but just in terms of quieting those passions, battling against those passions. But what about us? So I don't know about you, but I typically don't stop myself from eating for 48 hours. I don't stay up for two days at a time praying. I don't live in solitary confinement. Uh, but it's interesting in reading the Desert Fathers and Mothers that these are not the goal. These are the means. These are not the end that people are working towards, being so strong that you can stay up for four days praying. Instead, that those things are ways of helping you to quiet the voice of greed quiet the voice of anger, quiet the voice of lust, quiet the voice of despondency and desolation, quiet the voice, maybe most of all, of pride, of my perspective is right, everybody else is right or wrong, depending on how closely they adhere to my perspective, but I am basically the center of the universe. I am the arbiter of good taste. I am the arbiter of who's intelligent and who's not. What we need to do is work on those things. 
And so the church historically has seen the desert fathers and mothers as like next level, man, these guys and gals are really going after this hardcore. Like they want this badly, but the rest of us can also pursue these goals in similar ways. So in the new Testament, you have a lot of talk about fasting and yet that's been lost in much of the church. Typically when Christians fast, it's not fasting from everything, like one of these desert fathers or desert mothers. It's not like you spend a week not eating and then see if you can live. Instead, it is just telling that spirit of gluttony, no. So you might, especially in a penitential season in my tradition, like Lent or Advent, you might say, you know, I'm just going to be vegan. Or maybe even I'm just going to be vegetarian. And if you're not used to being vegan, if you're not used to being a vegetarian, basically by week three, you're going to be like, if I could just have one piece of bacon, just one piece of bacon, or maybe just a little one coffee with cream in it. I'm so sick of oat milk right now. And being able to say, to kind of look gluttony in the face and say, nope, this is enough. This is simple. This is nutritious. This is definitely not going to kill you. You're still eating really well. It's just more pasta than normal. It may be boring to you, but that doesn't matter. You can't push me around anymore. Even just that, even just eating more pasta and no hamburgers, that can empower you when your anger rises up to see it for what it is, to see it for this passion that's trying to take you over and to look at it in the eye and say, sorry, it's Lent. You know, you know what I've been saying to gluttony all this time? I'm starving here. I really want a nice slab of roast beef. But every single day I say, uh-uh, it's not going to happen. And you, anger, pshaw, get out of here. Like, I'm not going to get mad at this Facebook post. Who cares? I'm not going to be mad at that guy that still owes me $10,000. You know, he's my brother-in-law and Lord help him. But I'm not going to let you push me around. The same is true for prayer vigils. The Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers, they might stay up for days at a time in praying. But you or I, we could spend one hour in vigil. We could spend just one hour reading the Psalms. How many times have you totally wasted one hour? Watching trash TV that you don't even remember, scrolling through a social media feed, just doing nothing. You could take that one hour of nothing and just read through the book of Psalms, starting at Psalm 1, reading very slowly. You could take that one hour of nothing and read through the Gospels. You could get through reading slowly, not like a novel, but prayerfully, meditatively. You could get through a big chunk of the Gospel of Matthew in an hour. You can give an hour to God. You can give an hour to God in actively praying, praying for everyone, everything you can think of, bringing all of your sins before God, asking for forgiveness. You could spend an hour doing all sorts of things that draw you closer to God. And while you're doing that, you're also telling the passions no, because the passions are like, you're wasting your time. You could be productive right now. You could be doing something meaningful, maybe something that would increase your paycheck. The passions could be telling you all sorts of lies that are screaming at you. And yet when you practice something like this and you're able to tell them no, you get stronger spiritually. And those voices become quieter and quieter over days and months and years. They become easier to dismiss and you have more room 
to hear the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. You have more room in your life for peace. You have more room in your life for joy. You have more room in your life to serve others, for justice, for compassion, for goodness. You have more room in your life for God. So I think it's very helpful to read the lives of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, hear about these incredible acts of ascesis, and take just a teeny tiny part of that training, of that ascesis, into our own lives. So I am as far as you can get from being one of the great saints of the church. These people were just incredible reflections of the goodness and love and glory of Christ. But I believe that I can take a tiny piece of that spirituality and use it to help me say no to my own passions, to my own greed, to my own gluttony, to my own lust, to my own on and on and on and on. And I'm very thankful for the witness of these men and women. So I had a great question via email. And if you want to email me, my email is birdie at graceepis.org, G-R-A-C-E-E-P-I-S.org. If you are someone who is just like a, not a big fan of the Christian tradition, you want to tell me that, that is fine. Uh, but if you have a question that you'd like me to answer, that's that's more fun for me to get. Um, and if you just want to say thanks, thanks is always welcome. But um, mostly, if you do have some burning question related to all this and you'd like to kind of hear my thoughts on it, I would love to share those with you. So I had a great question from a guy called Maximilian who lives in the UK, and he was curious about um, how Christians kind of reconcile some things in the Old Testament that seem like pretty clear uh, scientific assertions, um, how is the world made, how old the world is, and that sort of thing, with the revelations of geology, of Darwin, Um, So I thought I might talk a tiny bit about that, take a little break from the Desert Fathers and Mothers in the next episode. And uh, so I hope you'll join me for some reflection on the dialogue between science and scripture, and then we'll jump back into these great heroes of the Christian story, the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Again, I'm Bertie Pearson. Uh, it's, It's really lovely to be with you. Thanks so much.